The following audio is from the Summer in the Psalms series, delivered to the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. It's good to see you and visitors. Uh, we will be in Psalm 139 this morning. So uh, if you didn't get one of Lindsay's cards, I know they're in the back. Please feel free to get up. Got a little place on the back to take notes. Um, and it's just wonderful that she's done that. I, I praise God that we've had these six weeks in the psalm. The five guys that have gone before me, um, I, I stand a little bit on your shoulder. In particular, I have Derek's prelim. So uh, this morning, before I even start, I'll be leaning into him and the work he did for us. <sighs> Am I okay on this? It sounds like I'm in a fish barrel. Is it okay? Okay. Uh, Dave is right. He and I didn't know it, but back in 1977, I became a Christian before y'all were thought of at all, most of you, except by God. We'll see that today in Psalm 139, that you were thought of by God, even back then when I was alive. And can you imagine that the church that I go to, we sang that song every week and it never got old victory in Jesus he loved me and sought me and bought me he loved me air that little ere he loved me before I knew him and all my love is due him he plunged me the, the picture of being underneath something water and the blood of Christ and led me up back to life, what Pastor Derek just read out of Ephesians 2. So, so blessed, you, you might say, my life has been to, to have been providentially moved into areas and places like that. And you'll see that Psalm 139 wants you desperately to know that this God who is always active on our behalf is providentially leading you whether we realize it or not. And the psalmist will finally just break down and, and praise God for that. Um, I, I am, I must say, uh, blessed as I see my son and daughter-in-law here with one grandchild. And my wife's over here of 35 years, uh, last June. And Caitlin, I'll just say it because most of us know it. We, we lost a child this week. Caitlin had a miscarriage. And we'll find out from Psalm 139 that God is there. He never left. He's in the darkness. Just like he's in that moment, I walk into a place that's singing victory in Jesus. So with that, let's, let's pray one more time and we'll go to work. Father, thank you for this morning, for the fact that we are known and that you search us, you search after us. You create us in a very unique way to know you back. And Father, that's our prayer this morning, to know you better, to see you in the face of Jesus Christ, your Son, who walked this earth again for us. All this we're praying as the Spirit might open our eyes and test us and see if there's any hurtful way in us and lead us into the everlasting way that you have shown us in your Son. 
We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Psalm 139 will open. It opens with, uh, I'm going to give you a couple of big words, but then tell you what they mean, and a thematic inclusio, which just means bookends. So from my engineering mind, some of you know I've been an engineer for 30-something years of my life, but now I'm a marriage and family therapist. So I'll combine the two today. There's a little outline of what the psalm does. It, it, It bookends the first verse and the last two with a searching and knowing And in between there, holding them together like bookends, is this theme, this theme that you are known. And that not just you are known intimately, but so well known. And and when we think, oh, that's awful, he's probably pulling away from me. The, The deeper theme is in verse 18b. He is with you and you are with him. I with you always. As Jesus will say at the end of Matthew, even to the end of the age, I am with you. And so we will feel, I hope, this morning that presence as we look at what is bound by those outward inclusios, those bookends. And what that is, it's broken into three, um, I'm going to, last big word, ontological realities of God. Which means it is what he has revealed, ontological, revealed essence of God that he has revealed to us, not just in the Old Testament, but then in his person of Jesus Christ, his son, fully God, fully man. And those things that we know him to be are omniscient, at least three of them that he lists here, omnipresent and omnificent. And then the psalm will turn in verse 19 And rather than view vertically, the psalmist looks horizontally, and it will shock us. Shock us so much that uh, the common lectionary used by some churches don't include these verses. They stop reading at verse 18. But as Pastor Jeremy does here, we we don't ignore the text. We read verse by verse and teach verse by verse. So so we'll see where that outlook leads us this morning, but it, it will shock you. And when we see then that we're bound by these brackets, and the first thing that we see is, you have searched me and known me. Oh, Lord. The, the word search there is used other places in the biblical text for uncovering something. Literally, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that means like a treasure hunt, that you leave no stone unturned when you are in this pursuit of something. It's also used for spying out a land, of leaving nothing again uncovered, but noticing every detail. So you have searched me and known me. That knowing there can be the common, just I know you. But really, here it's a more intimate by context, the knowing almost of a man and wife. Like, you know me. You, you really, really know me. And this is uncovered when we start to look at the theme of the overall book of Psalms from Psalm 1 that Daniel uh, taught us, that, that there are these two ways, and those two ways become, become a path, if you will, of our life. There's the way of righteousness, and there's the way of wickedness. And, and Daniel told us, you know, you're not to, to kind of walk in the way of the evil and stand in the gate of, of the place of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But you are to be led, as Barrett told us, in the way of righteousness. 
And we see that, that the same language is used in, in like a book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah uses this very same theme in, in chapter 17 when he's talking about the ways. Cursed is the man who trusts in his own self, in his own flesh, in his own strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by the water. Straight out of Psalm 1. And then from today's, the Lord searches those hearts and tests the mind and gives each man according to his ways. So we begin to see that this, this theme of Psalm runs all over the biblical text, even into the New Testament. As Pastor Derek would have told us, there are at least 400 echoes or direct quotations, 79 direct quotations, but 400 echoes of this book in the New Testament. It was their prayer book. It was used throughout the centuries as, as singing the very words back to God. Because he has known us, and he gives us language to back know him. And we see that then begin to unfold in these at least three very essence of God. And the first is he's omniscient. And verse 2 begins to open, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. And now the psalmist in the next few verses and throughout the text here in 139 will start to give us opposites so that we might know the inclusivity of what he's trying to say. And so you know when I sit down, but also when I rise up. So it would be like me saying, you know me from A to Z, which means everything in between also. You are understanding my thoughts even from afar now notice what he's saying sitting down lying or standing up you know me from a distance every thought and so distance is not a problem for him as we'll see when we get to the second one that he is omnipresent and in this then he, he goes further with these opposites in saying you scrutinize my path, my, my journeying. That path there was a, was a camel, uh, more of a, a market type path where, where people went and did business. You know that and my lying down. In other words, you know what I do during the day but also in the night. And, and you scrutinize that path is a, is a word means you sift it. Uh, almost the winnowing that, that you see in Psalm 1, that you throw the, the, the wheat up and the chafe falls, but here you sift it so that it may be measured, that he's measuring your ways and watching what falls. This is a beautiful thought too because then he says, you are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. And that way there is the word direct, which means a well-worn path. You know what I do. And in that, there, there should be somewhat of a, should I hide from this God that, that's always watching me? And sometimes we can feel that fear. But here, there is no fear because this second bracket, when we get to it, the psalmist will actually explode in prayer, wanting more of that. He knows this closeness and wants even more. And now this active participation in our ways, this winnowing, if you will, this shaking and watching and measuring gives way to even not just what we do, but now an inner dimension. You know my thoughts. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know them completely, the Hebrew here is, completely, all. You know my thought. And again, if we're not careful, this can make us nervous and we are constantly trying to take every thought captive. 
But if we look at the grand possibility of this, again, it's overwhelming as the next verse will shout out in in more praise. It's like in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to a church that's struggling, an immature church, and he wants them to grow in their maturity, to know God deeper. And he's giving them as he will say, the mysteries of God, what God has revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's teaching that, but he says, you are still of the flesh. Like, like you're not able to comprehend this. So he's, he's asking them, let God probe your mind and heart and fill you with the spirit that you may know the things of God. So much so that at the end, he goes, a natural man cannot accept the things that are the spirit for they are foolishness to him because he thinks through the flesh. But spiritually minded people can understand those things. For who has known the mind of God? And he concludes this verse by saying, but we have the mind of Christ. Contemplate that. Given the Holy Spirit poured out in our hearts that we too might have the mind of Christ always makes me think of John 15 where where Jesus says I'm not going to leave you I'm not going to leave you as an orphan I'm going to send another one an advocate a helper the Holy Spirit and he will teach you of everything I've done he will remind you of my ways he will witness of me to you if you will let him This is what he does, that he will convict you of sin. He will disclose the truth of God, reveal God's will to you, and glorify me through your thoughts. These are grand possibilities that are open to us as the God who knows us desires us to know him. And we begin to see again that this becomes so very I'll say usable in daily life, in our walk, when he moves into the fifth verse and says, you have enclosed me from behind and before. Now imagine what he's saying here, this, this uh, Hebrew word is, you have encircled me. It's a military term. You, you have come and encircled me from the rear guard to the front part that attacks. And you have laid your hand on me. So get the picture of that. My, my mind always jumps to a Greek phalanx formation, but it's, it's more of a Roman tortoise, and there's a shot of it, that they would take the guys up front with their shields, and the guys in the middle would hold them in the upper, and the guys in the rear could protect the rear and sides. And you get this feeling that as we move through life with God being intimately known, that there is this divine force field, if you will, around us not that it doesn't take hits not that it isn't in battle not that it isn't thrown to the ground but there is this divine protection in being known and knowing God that moves us forward even in the darkest of nights and that thought as he will say in verse 6 is too wonderful for us It is a thought that we can have, but he will say it is too lofty for us. It is something that I can't reach with the intellect. Again, begging us to rely on the Spirit of God as Jesus did when he walked the earth. Not our own minds, but the Spirit of God. We then, with this 
presence and this wrapping, if you will, and hand laid upon us, begin to see that, that there's no space that, that is too far and no distance that, that he can't intimately know us. And then he then asks, is there a place that I can go? Is there a place that I can be away from your spirit or somewhere where I can flee your presence? And it isn't that the psalmist wants to flee like Jonah fled, and we saw that that didn't work out too well a few months ago. But we, we don't have that, but it's like is there a place where I will not be protected? And I think that's a distressing thought. Most of you, again, are not old enough to remember that when cell phones were in first coming around and you would get off the interstate, you would lose service. You'd be great on I-40 going to Knoxville, but if you had to go anywhere north or south of there, you'd get off and you'd have no service whatsoever. The psalmist wants to know, is there a place where I'm beyond the reach of God? And this is the grand thought. No, you're not. As, as we begin to even move away from the earth, we can see that, you know, the sunlight that's striking the ground out there, it took eight minutes to get from the sun to the earth. It's eight minutes old. The sun is that far away. Moving at the speed of light, it takes eight minutes. 186,282 miles per second light moves. Well, just our galaxy, just the Milky Way, is 100,000 light years across. In one year, light will move 5.87 trillion miles. And it takes 100,000 years for that light to reach across. And Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 will tell us, He formed it all. In Him all things came to be. And he upholds them by the word of his power. That's an awesome thought. That no matter where you go, he is there holding things together. But closer to home, we would say, how does that affect me when you begin to, to, to struggle and feel like you are alone or lost? You begin to see quickly that, that, that he is there. He is there. He, he doesn't have to be, as the Old Testament would say, in just the temple. When, when Solomon dedicated the first temple, he said that even the heaven, which is the Milky Way and beyond, or the highest heavens, heaven itself, cannot contain you, much less one building. But he thanked him for, for being there intimately and, and, and holding up his end of, of the covenant promises. But it comes to be that when that temple is torn down, we would all have said, where is God? Is he gone? How now that we are hauled away into exile, in particular in Babylon, are we, is God anywhere near us? And if you'll turn to Ezekiel 1 at some time and just look at how the call of Ezekiel occurs away from Jerusalem, the place where God was supposed to only dwell, you'll find that God came there. The word of the Lord came and expressly laid his hand, much like this psalm, on Ezekiel and commissioned him in Babylon by the river Kabar. You are known. He is with you. This known presence, these brackets, if you will, provide a positive attachment in therapy language. It breaks my heart. I work with adolescents when I see a broken attachment pattern, whether they are anxious 
and can't do without or, or avoidant and running. This positive attachment means wherever you are on the face of the globe, he is with you. He loves you. Wherever you are on the face of the globe, he will not leave you such that you are free to explore the world. And if you fail and if you fall, you have a safe place to go home. It crushes me because I've had such a great set of parents that are still alive that I have such a positive attachment. When I see that positive attachment broken in a family, I grieve for you. Axis family, if you have that situation, I literally grieve. It hurts my chest. But you have one in heaven who will not forsake you nor leave you. He is attached to you regardless of where you go. And if you fail, he will pick you up. That's what verse 7 begins to tell us. And the extremes of that, verse 8, 9, and then 11 and 12, orbit around 10. 8, 9 begin to say, If I ascend to heaven, behold, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, the place they believe the dead to go and, and await... If I go to the depths of the earth, in other words, or ascend to heaven, behold, you are there. And 11 and 12 begin to to signify another expanse of lightness and darkness. If I say that the darkness will surely overwhelm me, if I feel like my current circumstances are just too much for me, and that even the light that's around me may go dark... Well, there is no darkness with you. Because even the night is like the day. And the light and the darkness are the same to you. In other words, there's nowhere you can be and no condition that you can be in that He is not there. Whether that be the hospital room, the funeral whether that be a a joyous birthday occasion, He is there. He makes the extent of light and day the same. He doesn't pick and choose where He'll be. He doesn't avoid the tough stuff. He is there with you. And in nowhere does it come better than these four verses that orbit around 10. For even there, even there, height, depth, all points of the compass are light and day. Even there, your hand will lead me, will guide me. Even there, your right hand will lay hold of me, will grasp. It means to take possession of. Even there, you hold me tight in possession. There is no place where he is not. And that laying hold of always reminds me of of what Paul will say in Philippians 3. When he expressly says these words about himself, that that he's done all these marvelous things, and yet we know the book of Philippians, he's what? He's imprisoned. You're talking about extremes. He begins to say in Philippians 3 all his credentials and what they were, but yet he's imprisoned. And he will push forward this thought that that none of that matters. In Philippians 3.10, he says, I only want one thing. I want to know him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering. 
I want that so bad that I count all these other things as lost, all other things lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And so therefore, whatever has happened before, I put away that I might lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of. That what Christ has laid hold of you for you and your life, you should pursue with reckless abandon. And if something goes awry, it's okay. It is not failure because He is there. You are attached to Him. Lay hold of that for which you've been laid hold of, possessed of. What a great thought moving us into life. And as darkness seems to, to cover the landscape here, he, he goes now to this omnificent, the, the creation, the, the creator God. He begins to, to explain this in terms of birth. And as I said, we had to work that out this week in a hard moment. And yesterday, I, I, I thankfully, I think, cried all my tears out. And Caitlin, the first, the first day, bless her heart, says, yeah, I think I've cried enough. <laughs> But I know there'll be more tears. But it's okay because God is in it. And he's there with a plan. It's just hard. And he says here, even that darkness though is not dark to you. For you formed me when I was in my mother's womb. You formed me. You, you wove me. This is artistry here. This is a beautiful creating moment. This isn't something that's just thrown on the canvas. It's intimate. It's of a, of a person weaving something. And when he says that you have known me, consider this thought that, that, that what starts life are two cells, two single cells. And do you know, as you sit in your seats this morning, you have at least 80 billion neurons just in your head. You have what they estimate, but they still aren't able to count, 37 trillion cells in your body from two. It all came from two. 37 with 12 zeros after it. All formed and fashioned together so very beautifully that he says, then I, I will give thanks for you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul, my nefesh, knows it well. My soul knows that well. And I will praise you for that. You are fearfully, hear this, and wonderfully made. You are an awesome work of God. Not an accident. Pre-planned in a setting of history for you to be used, as Derek read in 2.7 of Ephesians, for his glory to demonstrate the kindness of God. That's why we're here. Works that were created in the mind of God beforehand. 37 trillion cells now walking the earth, each and every one of you. In a, in a fashion that's so overwhelming, when he says this, that my soul knows this, it is Genesis 2, 7, when God takes man from the earth, from the dust of the earth, out of dirt, and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, so that he and she became living beings, and being, nefesh, a soul. It also crushes me in the room when, when I look across at a young man and ask him, what are the core truths of your life that you just love about yourself? And sometimes nothing comes to their mind. 
And all I can ponder is, you're walking earth with the breath of God in you. That alone should sustain you, motivate you, drive you to lay hold of what you've been laid hold for. But we don't know that because sometimes we don't contemplate that. Here the psalmist is begging us, do so, you are wonderful. My frame is not hidden for you. My bones, when I was made in secret, when I was skillfully wrought from that earth and from the depths of the earth, our kindred to Adam and Eve. When we are carefully, skillfully wrought is, is, is a word that actually means variegated. In other words, composed of many colors woven together like the rug that I stand on. Amazing you are. And this is all a grace of God because He saw us in the unformed substance from nothing, from when we were nothing, and yet all the days of our life are written in His book. Even before we had lived one of them, Psalm 31, 15, all my days are in your hands. What confidence we can walk through this world knowing no matter what happens, you've got me. This isn't surprise to you. Whatever happens like this week, that didn't surprise God. What a joy that brings a believer. To know we are, we are in his heart and mind before the foundation of time. You can go and read uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and, and around that area. Or Ephesians uh, 1, 3 through 6. For, for a pre-creation thought of you today. Because he loves you. And has wanted you to be in this space and time. So this brings great praise. How precious are your thoughts to us. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. If you took a one-foot cube of sand, I think there are over a billion, billion grains of sand in one-foot cube. One cubic foot. You think, he couldn't have all that thoughts of me. More than that? He's been thinking of you before he said this one word. Hayah. Let there be. And creation burst onto the scene. He was thinking of you. He was thinking of Jesus Christ who would die for you. How precious are you? And what I say is, verse 18b, for when I awake, I am with you. When I awake, I am with you. The last thought of the psalmist during the day, God. The first thought, I am with you. But I believe scholars are right here. They write that since we'd seen such deep darkness and, and are about to get this outlook into the world that's, that's very dangerous, that when we begin to see that, this, this awake is possibly death. That as this psalm is attributed to David, it could have most likely been in the event of when Saul was pursuing him, trying to, to capture and kill him. And, and David realizes, when I awake, I am with you. I am with you on earth. But the first thing I will see, the moment I die, will be you. And I think of Philippians. 
I think, of, I think of Paul when he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And that doesn't mean he's ready to leave the earth, because he says, for me to stay will be more beneficial, for he would teach the Philippians and others. So he has tasks he wants to do while he's on the earth, but he lives confidently that he is known and searched by God, so much so that he says, to live is Christ. Every moment, pursuing Christ. Every moment, living for Christ. Doing his will. But yet, Yet I know when I pass, when that day comes, the first thing I will do is know that I've gained because I will be in the presence of the living God. Brothers and sisters, you will wake up to Jesus Christ holding your hand. You will be in his presence. You will see the scars that made that possible. Again, such thoughts are too lofty too grand for us. But now we turn and 19 through 22 seems horrific. But if you view the totality of what he's been giving us, the, the, the opposite comparisons, the, the, the night, day, the, the, the distance and the intimate moments, we begin to see that here we're looking at extremes and he says, oh, that you'd slay the wicked and depart from me. He knows where he has been that if he goes back there, it is not the way of the Lord. In other words, he wants to live so very closely and respond to this intimate God that it does radically transform his life. Where do we see this in the New Testament? For 11 chapters in Romans, it is great doctrine on what God has done for you in Christ. The first three basically convict us that none of us are worthy, and you could use Psalm 16 too, that we have no good in us apart from God. That's basically Romans 1 through 3. 4 gives us an example of being brought to life by faith after the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the end of chapter 3. 5 awakens us up to this new life. 6, 7, and 8 work it out that if we will stay in the Spirit, we will have this intimate walk with God. 9 through 11 cover the nation of Israel where all will be saved someday. And at the end of that, he bursts forth in praise. How unsearchable, how awesome are God's judgments and ways. He can't fathom them. And then he says, therefore, for all of that, make yourselves living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual sacrifice of worship don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that radical shift you see between Romans 11 and Romans 12 1 and 2 occur here in my mind right here he makes this shift after knowing this omniscient omnipresent omnipresent God that I want to stay in such close fellowship to that I will have this outlook horizontally that sees where I've been that I might not go back there look at some of their deeds they shed blood they take the name of the Lord in vain. They speak wickedly against you. They hate the Lord. He, and they rise up against him. So he says, I do hate them with the utmost of hatred. Not every time in the Old Testament does hatred have the same denotation that our hatred does. It doesn't carry the emotion. It is just an extreme opposite. An extreme opposite. I brought at least two texts to show this. One is Psalm 97.10 that says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. It's a complete opposite. And here we're, we're looking at two paths, if you will, from Daniel Psalm 1 that he expounded for us. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Let me love the way of the righteous. Amos perhaps says it better in Amos 5, 13, 14. 
Seek good and not evil, that you may live good, evil. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil, love good, therefore establish justice in the gate. It doesn't really have that emotional ugliness that our word hate has here. It's just make a radical, almost militant stance against this world of where you've been. And yet you, brothers and sisters, will know that when you do such, you gain great empathy for those who are still doing what you used to walk in. So much so that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus will say, you have heard it said, love your neighbors but hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This stance of knowing where you've been and how God has changed you gives you a heart of empathy for those who are lost that you might be reaching out for them as Christ to them because you have been searched for and you are known. And he is with you in those moments. So I don't see these verses being out of place at all. I just see them being a radical stance of an outlook of the truth that that this world is tough. This world is hard. This world does have miscarriages. This world does have death. We do sin. We do see sin around us. And none of those sins are outweighing the others. They are all the same. And may I not go back there, but then may I be a witness to all those who still need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's my mission. That's why I'm here, to show the surpassing kindness of God. Those are the works for which I was predestined for in Ephesians 2.10. Those are the good works. And it's with that that you look at this and go, oh man, I hate somebody. No, you love them and you pray for them. You ache with them. Another reason I believe that to be true is because this psalmist doesn't mind his own heart being searched so that the last bracket that encloses those four parts, he says, search me, know my heart, try me, test the metal, put me in the fire is what he's saying there and let the dross fall away. That's a metallurgical term there. Try me, know my anxious thoughts, the shaky parts. Those parts that, that, that quiver that in the Hebrew that, that might decide to go another way, the way of the wicked. And see if there's any hurtful way. That, that word hurtful does come from anything that causes pain. See if there's anything in me that hurts another person. Another reason I say that 19 through 22 is our outlook of mission. If there's a hurtful way in me, Lord, remove it because you search me and know me. And let that be gone that I might be useful and fruitful so that you might lead me in the everlasting way. I've taken too long. So I'm sorry, but I I usually don't give application, but I've got to give this application. And you can study it at home, so please bear with me. We'll buckle up and do it in three, four minutes. I think you can see the extents of this psalm. The intimate knowing, the day, the night, the opposites. The, you can see the scale all in Christ Jesus, all in John, one, just one place, John 2, 3, and 4. 
and I'll give you a summary. At the end of John 2, Jesus has been in Judea, and we can show that map. He's been in Judea at the Passover, at least the first that he's been to. He's in Jerusalem. And then the text says that many believed in him in Jerusalem because of what he did, the miracles he did. But it says something weird at the end of 2. That Jesus didn't give himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knows that they're fickle. These same ones in Jerusalem, two Passovers from now, the third year, will crucify him. So it says that. And then all of a sudden, this man comes to him in the middle of the night. This man's a Pharisee. He's one of 70. He's educated. He's one of 5,000 in all of Judea and Galilee. He has reached probably the apex of his career. He is in the in crowd. He's one we would all say, man, I need to know that guy. He's a mover and a shaker. Let's, let's get to know him. And yet he comes to Jesus in the dark of the night. He's afraid to be seen. And he says something interesting to Jesus. He says, you know, we know, there's a lot of knowing that happens between 2, 3, and 4 of, of John. We know that you've come from God because nobody could do the things that you do unless they were from God. Jesus looks at him and it tells him one thing, knowing and searching his heart, who he is. He says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Now this intellectual Pharisee can't understand that. How can I go back in my mother's womb a second time? And we see that Jesus begins to give him clues that he's talking of spiritual things. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The, the wind blows where it will and you see its effect, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. So is everyone, so is everyone who is born of the spirit. They reach out to those in verses 19 through 22. They do things that are crazy because the spirit is driving them. And you don't know it's a spirit, but you see the impact. And we'll see Nicodemus drift away in the middle of the night. Praise God. Chapter 7 and 19 of John, you'll find out he became a believer. So much so that in broad daylight, he'll help bury Jesus after the crucifixion. He'll risk everything. Because nothing else matters but knowing Jesus. He's been laid hold of. Therefore, he will press on, forgetting what lies behind, to lay hold of that which he's been laid hold for. So there's one end of the spectrum. Where's the other end? The other end revolves around a little word that we, or verse 3, 15, and 16, that we all love and know. I think it knits the whole section of text together. Whosoever believes. Whosoever ever believes will have everlasting life. Whosoever 
No exclusions. No racial divisions. No gender issues. Whoever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we might have life. Everlasting. The everlasting way. Enter chapter 4. And something happens that he, Jesus, is out baptizing. Then you get this mix in John where you run. Does he know his geography? It doesn't really matter because then he's back in Judea and he must leave because the Pharisees realize he's getting popular. And it says he makes a journey. In fact, John 4, 4 says he had to go through Samaria. Had to go. That's not true because most religious Jews would skirt Samaria and go up that little dashed road there on the east side of the Jordan so that they don't defile themselves by walking through Samaria. They had over 400 years of conflict, racial tensions here. They would kill each other over where you should worship. Mount Gerizim, see it up there? Or Jerusalem. Huge battles. And yet it says in John 4, 4, Jesus had to go. Why does he have to go? There's this little word in the Greek, D-E-I, day. It's a divine imperative. It means God placed on his heart, you've got to go. You've got to be at a place in Sychar, we say, but it's Sukkar. You've got to be there at a certain place, at a certain time. Why? Because God has searched for, found, and knows that a woman's going to be there. A woman on the other side of the tracks. A woman of different nationality, different color, gender, whatever you want to put in there. She's not like you, and you got to go see her. you got to go see her because you just met this guy in the night who thinks he knows me. And we've got a woman who's at a well at noon who doesn't know me? She thinks, based on what she knows, that she can worship. But I'm telling you, she doesn't go to worship. Why do I think, that's not in the text, that she doesn't go to worship? Because she's at a well at noon by herself. Because I think, when we see her social situation and her moral situation, the townspeople have excommunicated her. They have sent her out. And he meets this woman and he sits at the well. And our Lord who created all things, including the 37 trillion cells in your body, is thirsty. Him who compressed H2O is thirsty and now needs it. But what unifies us with both Nicodemus and this unnamed Samaritan woman is their need for Christ. And he sits there and he begins to talk to this woman. And she says, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. I'm a woman. You're a man. This isn't supposed to happen. Because I had to be here. I had to be here at noon because I knew you'd be at the well. And they begin to debate some things. And he gets right to it in searching her. Go get your husband. I think she backpedals. I don't think she says, well, I have no husband. I think she... I have no husband. And I think we see the heart of Jesus in this Psalm 139 that knows her so well and the empathy of where she's been. 
and how those other ladies exclude her, how they tell their husbands, don't you go near her. She's had five husbands and she's got to live in, love her. And Jesus knows this and tells her that. No condemnation, no cutting her off at the knees, no putting her outside this, of his own holy ground. Trust me, he's sitting at the well. It's holy. And he says, I have living water to offer you. She has no status, no education, no prospect. She finds Jesus. She lets the most precious thing that she has, the jug of water there, runs to the city and says to the men of the city, who I'm sure are keeping their space. Come see a man who knows everything I ever did. Everything. And invited me into life. She finds the Messiah and the town of Sukkar rush to see him. And Jesus stays there two days. Remember one of our last sermons in Mark? We're about to get back in Mark. Remember when he's so popular there because of the healings? He's, he what? Oh, let's leave. I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta preach in other towns. He stays two days in a place that would defile him ritually with a woman he should have never spoken to and puts her on the everlasting way. I truly believe that's what we've all been laid hold of for. Don't lose the fact that he is with you. Don't lose the fact that there's no place ever that he won't be with you including death so that you can confidently feel the attachment of the Heavenly Father and move into vocation and mission for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You search us and know us. Forgive us of the ways we hide. Forgive us of those Things we think are beyond your ability to be in presence to. Help us lean into a story like this precious woman and this learned man, both of which needed you to truly have everlasting life. Father, we praise you for your word, the ability to know you, all in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Summer in the Psalm series from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. To learn more, visit theaxischurch.org.